Welcome to Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint and my guest today is John Ruddick, the leader of the Liberal Democrats in New South Wales. And the subject is interesting and it may seem a little strange. The New South Wales and United States elections, a Liberal Democrat view. Well, apart from being a very successful businessman, John Ruddick has been, as probably many of you know, a political activist for three decades. In 2018, he published a book which uh, created a bit of a bombshell, Make the Liberal Party Great Again. And it proposed the radical democratization of the Liberal Party, which I think many people agreed the Liberal Party needed. John was to leave the Liberal Party in due course for what he stated were three unforgivable thin sins. Three unforgivable sins. Uh, COVID authoritarianism, a trillion dollar debt, a trillion dollar, to just grasp what a trillion dollar is, it's $1,000 billion. Just think of a billion dollars, it's 1,000 of them. The trillion dollar debt, which has been left at the federal level apart from state debts. And his third reason uh, was the net zero carbon economy. So may I begin, John, with my first question, why not why are you leading the Liberal Democrats, why are you a Liberal Democrat? Very nice uh, to see you, David, and thanks Thank for you. having me on the show. Okay, so the Liberal Democrats uh, are, are, have been around for about a quarter of a century. Now, they are very similar, David, to what the Liberal Party was when it was founded in the 1940s, which was a party very much committed to small government and personal freedoms, okay? And they basically, you, you can, sub, it's a libertarian party. And libertarianism can really be summed up in two words, power corrupts, okay? So what we believe, look, we, we are thought of as a right-wing party in today's political environment. The truth is we really just wanna make the government smaller because we just, history tells us that government will cause corruption. And so, and it will pervert things. It will hurt the economy. It will hurt poor people. It will basically have not much positive outcomes, okay? So what we think is, look, the best thing to do is simply to make the government smaller, and the smaller it is, the less corruption there will be. So the Liberal Democrats are a very ideologically based party. There is one key part of policy where the Liberal Democrats would differ from, say, the traditional parties on the right, like the Liberals and the Nationals. And that is the glorification of war. Okay, so the Liberal Democrats, because we're distrustful of government in the first place, it's governments that go to war all the time with each other. Now, we're not pacifists, okay, but for, look, for example, we, we, we would look at World War I where the bodies were piled up in Europe uh, in, in, in the form of mountains. And it was all absolutely unnecessary. Uh, I mean, if you ask somebody, even people well-informed, like a lot of your viewers, Dave, you ask them, what was World War I about? Killed about 20 million people. It was just, it was, it was politicians 
with on power trips that just went out of control. We were we were fighting on the side of the Serbians after they killed the the um, the, the crown prince of Austro Austro Hungarian Empire. That's we were, we were fighting on their side. This was just a war that was just escalated because of egotistical politicians, and it was a pointless war. Now, when it comes to World War Two and the Cold War when we truly had evil regimes that did want world domination, of course we had to fight those wars. But then we look at the wars of, of this century, and look, I think the Kuwait war was a, a righteous war. Okay, we had little Kuwait, gets invaded by a big bad Saddam, the, a, a world coalition comes together, they liberate Kuwait, and they didn't try to you know, replace Saddam, which would become messy. But we've had four wars this century, David, after 9-11. We've had Afghanistan, it went to hell, Iraq, which went to super hell, Libya, which was totally pointless. Libya, Libya was getting its feet together. Libya was the one success out of Iraq. Then we've had Syria. Now, these are four bad wars in a row because uh, political corruption, people, I'm not talking about financial corruption, just people getting sort of uh, egotistical. So that is one area of distinction that the Liberal Democrats would have uh, with, say, the tradition, what the Liberal and the National Party should be, who, who are meant to be about free enterprise, meant to be about civil liberties. There was one president there, wasn't there, where there was no war. Oh, yes, Mr. Trump, Donald Trump. <laughs> and we're going to come back to him later, aren't we? But uh, while, while you're there, uh, I seem to recall reading or hearing that you said that there are about 11%, there's about 11% conservative votes around which are unhappy with the Liberal Party and they're ripe for the smaller parties like the Liberal Democrats, like One Nation. Did you say something like that and do you still believe that? Oh, well, look, the federal election was you know, less than a year ago and about across the country, uh, about 12.5% of people voted for what we call a freedom-friendly party. So that would be the Liberal Democrats, the United Australia Party, One Nation Party and uh, IMOP and a, a few other good little parties. So now these are parties that barely got any corporate media attention, uh, but they still got 12.5%. Now, that may not sound like too much, uh, but you only need 50% to form government. So 12.5% is a quarter of the base that you would need. Now, these are the activists. Uh, these are the people who have stopped listening to the Liberals and the National Party. Now, in New Zealand, obviously, David, there's no country in the world more similar to Australia than New Zealand. Um, and, you know, uh, as, as you know, your constitutional history, they almost became Australia, you know, in, in the 1890s. Mm. Now, in New Zealand, the difference is, even though there's so many similarities, New Zealand has only one of these parties, and that's called the ACT Party, which is a very libertarian party. And in the middle of COVID, uh, they had a national election. And the world headlines were that Jacinta Ardern has won in a landslide, which he did, which he did. Okay, but what got obscured in that New Zealand election, even a lot of, a lot of your viewers may not be aware, the, the ACT Party before that 2021 election, which was in the middle of all the COVID hysteria, had ACT had one member of parliament. After that election, they had 10 members of parliament. That's out of 150 people in a single chamber. And that ACT Party has done extremely well. And the polls say they're, they're likely to possibly double their votes at the election later this year and become the deputy prime ministership under, under the National Party. 
uh, well, in coalition with the National Party. So the so 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 what is a difficulty in the freedom friendly parties in the right in Australia is that just through circumstances we are splintered. We have multiple parties. We have you know uh, which you know we're friendly with all of those parties. We like their leadership. We like their membership. We go to a lot of events and we see each other and we all sit around thinking why aren't we one party? Now these things aren't easy. Uh, but we certainly need, we may not be able to merge, but we certainly need to have greater collaboration. Will there be uh, any preferential deals, particularly for the Legislative Council, where I think the voting will be optional preferential above the line, won't it? Does that mean yes, you, just, you can just put one if you want to for one party and that's a valid vote above the line? Yes, that is correct. Okay, so but the Liberal Democrats will certainly be recommending uh, a vote for six parties in all the seats and in the Legislative Council. Will be putting, will be preferencing the coalition ahead of the Labor Party. Uh, but we on our on our how to vote, the coalition will be number six, and then there will be other good parties in there that we'll, we will be wanting to support. But you are right, David, that the uh, that it is optional preferential, so that can sort of make predicting results difficult. Now, I, I am happy to say that uh, both the Liberal Party and the National Party, who they, they run a joint ticket in the Legislative Council, but they do hand out separate how to vote with different preference arrangements. I'm very pleased to announce on your show today that the both the Liberal Party and the National Party have agreed to give the Liberal Democrats their number two preference in the Legislative Council. That will be and very now, effective, now, won't it? That, that, that will mean the now, overflow once, once they reach, yes. once they fill their quotas, and if there's an overflow, yes. as there always is, there has to be mathematically yes. an overflow uh, so that the, those votes will then move to you. Well, I very much hope you're right, David. There's a very good, well, there's a good chance it will, but you understand how the quotas work in the overflow. Now, it could be that the overflow, let's say the coalition might get 7.1 quotas. So then we would have an overflow of only 0.1, mm. which would be helpful, but not may not be consequential. It could also be that the coalition ticket gets 6.8 quotas, uh, and therefore they will probably then get preferences from various places, which will get them up to seven. So the actually the the... For, for a party, a, a minor party like ours, the Liberal Democrats, which is, uh, you know, has, has the preference flow, the sweet spot for us is that they fill up their quotas and they have about 0.3 or 0.4 left over or 0.5. That's the sweet spot. So it's quite random. It doesn't really matter what the state statewide result is, mm. like whether there's a swing to the coalition or not. It just depends upon what that overvote. But it's very good to have them and we're very grateful for them. One nation is obviously going to make a major impact in this election, yes. I would think. Uh, do you have any arrangements with them about uh, any exchanges of preferences? In the federal election, the Liberal Democrats put the United Australia Party at number two, and we put uh, one nation at three. Now, uh, I agree, Mark Latham has been a very good MP, and he has he has decided to not make any preferences, which is his prerogative, so for, for any party. 
Uh, we will be preferencing One Nation on our how to vote. Uh, now, we believe we're a better party than One Nation, uh, but we believe that having Mark Latham in Parliament is a, you know, on a good thing. He, he's been a very effective MP. Yes, he's certainly been effective. Um, one, one of the other matters that uh, I wanted to ask you about is uh, you, you say you are sceptical about global warming orthodoxy. Uh, does that mean, does that reflect a division of opinion within the party as to some, some, people, some people accept the global warmest theory, others don't? But those who don't uh, think that they're going, we're going too fast in renewables. Okay, well, the, in, the, in the Liberal Democrat membership, there would be a spectrum of views. That, that, that statement we made that we are sceptical of the global warming orthodoxy, all Liberal Democrats subscribe to that. Now, there is a spectrum where some people in the party subscribe to the Bjorn Lomberg view of the, this issue, which is that, yes, carbon dioxide, uh, with the industrialisation is increasing the amount of carbon dioxide. And yes, that is having a mild impact on rising temperatures, but it's not much of a problem. There's not much we can do about it. It could even be a positive thing. So they would be with Bjorn Lomberg. Now, I am with the, uh, the Professor Ian Plymer uh, spectrum, where I believe it's uh, a delusion. I believe it's an apocalyptic witch doctor cult, David. <laughs> and I think that we, we are hurting ourselves. You know, David, I read this extremely interesting book recently about this convict who, you, you know that they tried to start a, a penal colony in Port Melbourne in about 1803? Mm -hmm. it, it got abandoned and they went to Hobart, but they tried for about two months to start a penal colony because it's a, it's a fabulous harbour in Port Melbourne, uh, Port Phillip Bay. When they were there... Um, a British convict escaped and he thought he was going to walk to Sydney, uh, which was obviously not going to happen. Anyway, he got very warmly uh, adopted by an Aboriginal tribe who he lived with for 32 years. And then when John Batman came over from Tasmania and formally established Melbourne, this fellow, whose name was William Buckley, not to be confused with our, uh, our friend in America, William F. Buckley, but his name was William Buckley. His account is on the is on the internet. It's, you can write it. It's a PDF. There's a good Wikipedia page about him as well. Anyway, my point is this about global warming. William Buckley, when he walked into Port Phillip, he thought he would be arrested because he was a escaped convict. But they were thrilled to have him. They thought, well, gee, this guy can help us have good relations and understand the the, the native people of Australia. So he then became uh, he became integrated back into British society or English Australian society. And he wrote a book about his 32 years of living with the Aboriginals of Australia. Now, in that book, he, there's, a, there's a short little episode where he talks about how uh, there was this period where all the tribes, this, 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 they all got mesmerised by this, this uh, belief, this rumour went around and put everybody into a panic that the world was going to collapse unless everybody handed over as much food and as many sort of tools and things, they had to pass them along from tribe to tribe. So it, it, it ended up going to this mythical figure at the end of the world who was gonna save the world. And, that, and he said he never fell for it, but the tribe believed it was an imminent apocalypse unless they handed over their money. 
And his tribe went and lived on top of a mountain, fearful for a couple of months, fearful that there was going to be this, this apocalypse. And he said all the tribes fell for it. And William Buckley says, I don't know what scoundrel was at the end of this scam, but he says, he says it's not unique to the Aboriginal tribes. Mankind across our entire history has suffered from these mass delusions. And David, this is what global warming is. It's, a, it's the same type of people. There's, all, there's, a, there's a few common characteristics. Firstly, there's an imminent apocalypse. Now, we're not talking about a drought or an earthquake or a natural disaster. Now, we're talking about the end of the world, okay? It's extremely important. Nothing's more important in the world than it. And secondly, you've got to hand over all your money. Okay, it's like the indulgences at the time of the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> That's and, amusing. And this but, but is what global warming is. I, I, I think that's a beautiful description. I think you're wise to choose Bjorn Lomborg for the people who do have this uh, belief in the minimal effect of uh, global warming because he's a highly respected person and comes yes. out with common sense, which seems to have escaped for example, the government of New South Wales, Mr Keane, for example, although he seems to be changing track a little before the election. But this idea that you rush to renewables before you, before you can even rely on them seems, and, and you destroy what you have seems to be so silly. And Lomborg, is, uh, Lomborg does uh, believe in a common sense solution to non-problems. And I think that's a, a very wise decision. You, you also obviously are a Federalist Party. Do you think that you can, if you are in a position of influence, restore the Federation? Because we are, as you know, uh, the worst Federation in terms of fiscal balance in the world. Uh, no other country in the world, I think, has the central government collecting about 80% of all taxes, then handing back half of that to the states, but on condition that the states do what the Commonwealth says. So you get the implementation, implementation at the central level of the most appalling policies. And the, the classical example is in education, where the standards have fallen so dramatically in this country. When I first met you, David, about 15 years ago, you mentioned in passing the great New South Wales Premier of the 1890s, Sir George Reid. Now, I have uh, become a bit of a sort of a, a, a student of George Reid. I've read his memoirs, I've read academic books about him, and he was a magnificent person. He's largely forgotten by a popular culture today. He really was the most important person in Australia in the 1890s and had a huge impact on the Federation. Uh, but he was the handbrake. Uh, Federation, as you know, was pushed by Melbourne in a big way. New South Wales was, was very, very reluctant about Federation. And in fact, the city of Sydney twice, New South Wales may have voted yes in favour of Federation. Uh, but Sydney itself, the city of Sydney, the premier city, voted twice against Federation. They wanted to be like New Zealand. Now, why did they do that? They were, New, New South Wales was the low tax, pro-business, free trade colony. And they thought, correctly, as we now know, they thought that if we have this centralised government, that the other states, particularly sort of uh, led by Victoria, who were protectionist and they wanted a regulated, not, they weren't socialists, but they wanted a big state, uh, you know, social engineering. And they said, look, if we invent this new central power, New South Wales freedoms will slowly be taken away. 
And that's exactly what's happened. So what happened, you know, when, when the Commonwealth started in 1901, did the Commonwealth have income, pack, income tax powers? No. Did they have company tax powers? No. They had a few custom duties and a few other little things. But the country, the, the federated country, was basically six, six states with a central administration for foreign affairs and defence and a few other little things. But what has happened? Well, then World War I comes along and then the federal government says, oh, well, look, it's an emergency. We need income tax powers. But as soon as the emergency's over, we'll give the income tax powers back to the states. Huh. Okay, the war, come, the war comes and goes. The federal government keeps the income tax powers. Then a little thing called World War II comes along. The federal government says it's an emergency. It's an emergency. We need company taxation powers, but we'll hand them back after the war. And, of course, now the federal government's only got income tax and company tax powers. So in the Liberal Democrats' Freedom Manifesto, which people can Google, uh, for, for the, the New South Wales Freedom Manifesto, we have a, a one-page essay towards the end in which what we say is the Liberal Democrats stand for uh, returning income tax powers and company tax powers back to the states. And then we would... We would we're really the most pro-Australian party there is, David. Yes, we're I saying what the original the original founding fathers wanted. Yes, I noticed that. I thought it was commendable that you want to t take back the taxation powers. Uh, mentioning Victoria, just as a matter of interest, uh, during the referendum, that was the state which we thought was the most likely to be lost. That was the one which we did win narrowly, but uh, Victoria turned out to be the most Republican of states in Australia. No other state came even close to it, but uh, Victoria was the one which came very close to voting yes in the referendum, but fortunately didn't, because I think we had a very good director down there, Rick Brown, who advised us on what best to do. I noticed that uh, you're, you want a parliamentary inquiry into COVID justice, the terrible things that happened under COVID, the outrageous, I think, unconstitutional things which happened by dictatorial governments in Australia. Uh, you want a parliamentary inquiry and they can be useful. Uh, and uh, you, you're also in favour of a royal commission, but you, you warn that governments can appoint the wrong people in royal commissions. Uh, when, uh, when ACM went to see Matt Thistlethwaite over the Republic, one of, his, uh, one of his advisors said to me, we got onto strangely the question of a Royal Commission into the area of what happened under COVID and uh, asked me my views. And I said, yes, I support it, but it all depends on whom you appoint. And I was thinking about this and I thought if you appointed people who, judges who would have uh, the respect of the population, and I was thinking, a very good combination would be to have uh, Ian Callanan, Michael Kirby, and uh, Margaret Kaneen as, as the Royal Commissioners. Then you would get a difference of views, some very good views in their report, but the public would have confidence in what came out. Do you, what do you think of doing something like that? Uh, I... You know, Anthony Albanese, about a month after he became the Prime Minister, he was asked if there would be a COVID Royal Commission. He says, of course there's going to be a COVID Royal Commission. <laughs> it, would be it would be unthinkable that we don't have one. And it should be unthinkable because it was a, an extraordinary measure which we're still suffering from. We'll suffer from it for another 10 years, all this debt. Uh, but no, I do not want a Royal Commission now. All major political institutions, 
all powerful institutions in this country were so COVID corrupted. The courts, the political parties, the big media, big business, the police, everything, academics, everything was corrupted. There, I think it, I consider it an impossibility we could have a truly good uh, commissioner at this point in time. Uh, so so I, I think maybe in five to ten years' time when the COVID fog has fully passed and we can look back at the, the, the shocking things that happened, but we can have a parliamentary inquiry. And that is one of the key things I would want to do if I am uh, successful in getting elected to the Legislative Council, because we can... Uh, we don't quite have the power of the Royal Commission, but we can certainly, you know, uh, you know request uh, you know, ministers and, and citizens to come along and give us an account. And it will be parliamentarians, hopefully myself, uh, asking people these questions. There are unlimited questions that need to be asked about the COVID psychodrama. And what, what worries me, and we don't need to relitigate that now, but what uh, concerned me the most about the COVID psychodrama uh, was the precedent, the precedent of the big state pushing people around for a nearly pointless cause. Okay, so they, you know, you know David, I still have not taken a COVID vaccine. I'm very happy that I have not taken a COVID vaccine. And, and uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm, there's about 4% of us in Australia that haven't taken one. Okay, and, and I was fortunate in that because I worked for myself. So I didn't have some boss threatening to sack me if I didn't take it. Mm. Uh, but um, but the, uh, the, the, the precedent is so extraordinary. And what worries me about it is, is that the big state, the people that like pushing us around, this sort of these wannabe tyrants now know that if they do push us around, most people will go along with it, you know, because they're, they're scared of being ostracised. They're scared of being a social outcast if they defy the regime. Now, of course, what's the next thing they're going to want to do? Global warming BS. They're going to they're going to they're going to say extreme global warming. We need we need to take extreme measures to prevent the global warming. This. But COVID does represent, give us an opportunity. There is a silver lining, David. I believe most people out there, to some extent, now look back on the COVID psychodrama and they can see that there was junk science involved. Endless authorities, from the President of the United States down to Kerry Chant, told us, you take one vaccine, you won't even catch COVID. Everybody's caught COVID. Everybody's mm. probably caught it twice by now. Okay, I think there's an argument for saying the more vaccines you take, the more you get COVID, but we'll put that aside. Um, but everybody, I think most people now are distrustful of the COVID science. And I know that because they are, th four months ago, the, the federal government said, oh, you've got to take your fourth booster. Everyone over the age of 18 has got to take your fourth booster. Now, there was no mandates involved for the fourth booster and only 23% of Australians have taken it. So that tells me three out of four, three out of four Australians are to some extent not listening to the government about the COVID stuff. So three out of four are doubting the government when they tell them something about the COVID vaccine. Okay, well, I'm saying, well, it's a short step there to say, well, it's exactly the same class of people that were lying to you about COVID junk science are lying to you about global warming junk science. It's the same people. So therefore we should have doubt on the global warming science. An organisation that I'm involved with, and you are too, Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, put in a submission to government arguing that uh, action needed to be taken. 
concerning two breaches, not perhaps of the written constitution, but of the constitutional system because so many regulations were being made just by a minister in the middle of the night. For example, in New South Wales, the closing down of the construction industry without the advice of the health officer, they closed down the construction industry for two weeks. It cost uh, almost $2 billion, a massive decision to take. And we still don't know why they did. And what we said, well, firstly, there should be proper process in the making of regulations. These, any important regulations should go to the Executive Council. There should be something like an explanatory memorandum setting out why all this should be made public. It should be a formal process. But more importantly, perhaps, the power of disallowance should always exist. It's been taken away a lot in relation to Commonwealth legislation. They just pass legislation without, without it being a matter which can be disallowed by either house. But in New South Wales, the Berejiklian government resorted to what was a, a very sharp piece of uh, um, action. And that was uh, they stopped the Legislative Council from meeting because there's an obscure standing order which says a minister must be there, presumably so that the work of the Legislative Council can proceed comfortably. They just instructed obviously all their ministers not to attend meetings and then the president closed the meeting on a point of order. So the Legislative Council couldn't meet during COVID because Parliament couldn't meet. They could have met by Zoom, obviously. They could have still continued, but Parliament wasn't meeting. And most importantly, the Legislative Council couldn't meet, so they couldn't review any of the regulations, regulatory decisions taken by the government, which were announced every morning, you might remember, and the media went along with it all. What do you oh, think yeah, of that? The media cheated on. Well, the, the media cheated on. You know what I think the problem with the press gallery is, David? You know, a generation ago, the average age of someone in the press gallery was, I think, over the age of 50. Now, I think when, when, when they used to have these 10 o'clock, uh, 11 o'clock, uh, you know, COVID, uh, you know, alarmist press conferences when we're all locked at home. Yeah, you saw that you saw the people asking these questions of you know, the premier and the bureaucrats and everything. They look like 30 year old kids to me, you know, and, and this is a big, big part of the problem. But the biggest part of the problem, of course, is most of the blame lies with the quality of our politicians. I am convinced that these politicians got a kick out of it. They enjoyed COVID. They felt like they were Winston Churchill saving the world uh, at, the, at the helm of a great crisis. And, and that, that's, this is why, you know, where we started, power corrupts. And so we just need to... Now, th this is what the libertarian view would have been when COVID first came along in the world, if we had a libertarian utopia. Because, you know, every season there's a flu, every season there's, it's a different type of flu. Sometimes it's in our chest, sometimes it's in our nose, sometimes it's in our head, it's a little bit different. Sometimes it's mild, sometimes it's bad. Every decade or two, it can be a very bad flu. And, uh, and, and, and then maybe once a century, there really is a catastrophic flu like the Spanish flu. Okay, now this COVID one was nothing in the, in the, it was nothing, nothing like the Spanish flu, but it was a bad flu. It was a, you know, probably once in a quarter of a century bad flu. So what, what, would have, what should have happened is, is that um, the media should have uh, told people, look, there's a bad, bad flu going around. And then it should have been left to individuals yes. uh, to sort of 
deal with it themselves. Now, if some people wanted to lock themselves at home because they were elderly or frail, uh, good, they probably should have. But if you're a young, fit person and you've got a business or you, and you've just got things that you absolutely have to do, well, they should have had the freedom to make those decisions themselves. People who were worried had the ability to lock themselves away if they wanted to. If people were foolish, if people were vulnerable and they went out and got the flu, well, I mean, that's on them, okay? And, and the thing is, all these measures didn't stop COVID anyway, David. Everyone got COVID. So it was all, it was all a big waste of time. Mm. The vaccine didn't work, lockdowns didn't work, the masks didn't work, but we're now left with two terrible things, massive government debt all around the Western world, you know, it's not just the Commonwealth debt, which is a trillion dollars, almost half of that's from COVID. The New South Wales debt's up to, you know, you know, you know when the Labor government lost in 2011, David, they handed over a debt of about $7.8 billion to, the, to Barry O'Farrell. Now it's, it's on track, it's, a, it's, it's on its, it's unstoppable to get to 115 billion right now. It's about, a, this is just the New South Wales mm. government debt, but it's all, United States, Britain, Europe, New Zealand, all the crazy countries that went crazy about COVID, they've all got this massive debt, massive debt. So that's the worst thing. And of course, the precedent, which we discussed before, you know. There is a, an interesting uh, publication by the London Telegraph. And these are the Matt Hancock emails. And this is a minister discussing matters with other ministers and bureaucrats. And they are laughing and enjoying the terrible things they're doing to the people of the United Kingdom because of uh, COVID, the, the lockdown. They, they are really enjoying it and they're making jokes about it. And they're doing terrible things to people who are suffering awfully. And it, I think you said, you certainly said that uh, they enjoy the abuse of power. They certainly did. And this this publication in Britain, which I hope is turned into a book, will demonstrate how wickedly they were. We saw the same thing in Australia with people being denied the right to see dying relatives by some jumped up premier in an Australian state who's decided that that's not going to happen under his or her jurisdiction. They treated people atrociously. I had... Uh, an elderly couple, uh, one of them was Dutch, and they wanted to go home to Holland to pass away there, and they weren't allowed to leave the country. We had politicians leaving the country regularly to go to all sorts of photo opportunity conferences, but ordinary people weren't allowed out of the country. I think they enjoyed the abuse of power. And I think you make a very important point there. Could I go on to something else? You say the party is colorblind. And I yes. think that's commendable. And what's your position on The Voice? Oh, well, look, we're not just opposed to The Voice. We are deeply upset by The Voice, okay, that we're even discussing The Voice, okay? So the libertarianism believes that um, what Martin Luther King said in the 1960s was very simple. He says, you know, we should be judging people by their the content of their character and not the colour of their skin. Now, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to work that out. A four-year-old kid can work out that that's the right thing to do. Mm. Now, there have been, obviously, throughout human history, there have been many examples of overt racism where racial minorities have been oppressed purely because of the colour of their skin. Now, we've got over that. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't white societies doing that exclusively. All societies did it, OK? It was part of the human condition. But we are slowly but surely becoming more civilised, getting better. In the 1960s, I thought we resolved this question. So we're not going to 
judge anybody according to the colour of their skin. Okay, but what has happened since the 60s is that the left has decided, well, there were so many injustices in the past, we need to have positive racism. And I will, I will give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they actually have sincere intentions and that they do want um, the Aboriginal people of Australia to have uh, more, successful, more successful lifestyles. And they think through government intervention, we can, you know, that, that, it, that, that does single them out, that does treat them differently because of the colour of their skin, but we're doing it to help them. Okay, so it's different to overt racism. It's positive racism. But they're still, the fundamental ingredient is still the same. They're treating human beings, these magnificent creatures, human beings, you know, which the, the, out of all the species on this planet, we're obviously the smartest thing the, the world's ever known, possibly, well, possibly the only life in the universe, David. So we're treating human beings uh, differently because of the colour of their skin. It never, ever uh, ends well. Now, uh, uh, more specifically on The Voice, I'm just, you know, whenever there's a new Labor government, David, <clears throat> well, since, since Whitlam, whenever they come in, the first thing they want to do is some big symbolic gesture towards the Aboriginals. So we had Gough Whitlam set up the Aboriginal Land Council. Bob Hawke for a while was talking about a treaty. Paul Keating had his big Redfern speech. Kevin Rudd, his big parliamentary apology. Now, Gillard is an exception because he was sort of, yeah, under attack from Rudd the whole time. Uh, but then we had Albanese come in and he's going to have a, the voice. Now, it's, they just, they, it's like they've got this little this bucket list. They just want to tick it off. I've done some big symbolic gesture for the Aborigines. Now let's move on to something else. They don't care if it doesn't improve anything. I, I, I'm pretty convinced it, get, it, it only gets worse. Um, so the, um, now, now this, this, um, uh, this voice thing, what is the most disturbing part about it is, is that uh, we've done this before. It was called ATSIC. ATSIC was a complete disaster. And John Howard abolished it. And when John Howard abolished it, uh, the, Labor, uh, the Labor Party didn't even complain about it. I don't, I don't even really think the Aboriginal industry complained about it that much. So, the, uh, so but now Albanese wants Labor to basically... This is... Labor wanted it. Mark Latham, the Labor leader, I think wanted it at the time. He wanted ATSIC abolished. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. That, that that rings a bell. That sounds right. Yes. But so, uh, so there. So but, but we we're going to enshrine it in the constitution. And as you know better than anyone, David, uh, it's very hard to get something unamended in the constitution, isn't it? I mean, I don't think it's happened in Australia. It's happened twice in America. They've changed. They've amended the constitution and then walked it back. No, very, temperance, very hard. for example. Temperance. Yes. Yes. Laws. But uh, yes. I think you're absolutely right. I think the problem was the problem of the gap is a creation of the politicians. And it goes back to Menzies didn't want the referendum, the 67 referendum, to include transferring power to the Commonwealth. And uh, Reg Withers told me this at the convention. He said Menzies' view was this would create a vast and useless Commonwealth bureaucracy in Canberra. You can do everything you want for the Aboriginal people through Section 96 conditional grants to the states. That's the way to handle it. He just wanted to get rid of the so-called census provision as, just as a symbolic act to recognise the Indigenous people. But Holt, when Holt got in, he listened to the Labour Party. They let Menzies legislation for the bill lapse and they introduced a new bill and they added 
adding the power for the Commonwealth to legislate. That led, that led uh, Holt to appointing Nugget Coombs, the very wrong person, to manage Aboriginal affairs. And what happened was that he abandoned Sir Paul Hasluck's and previous policy of full assimilation, and they replaced that with segregation into the remote areas, segregation into these utopian communities in the remote areas. That's been the problem ever since, and that's what they've got to get rid of, I think, rather than worrying about a voice. But can I go on to another matter? I was looking at your Freedom Manifesto, which is very interesting, and I noticed that in education, you're proposing vouchers. Now, I think vouchers are the answer to many of the problems in relation to the falling standards in education, because through vouchers, you would, you would be giving people a choice. They could take, send their children to charter schools or religious schools uh, and get all the advantages of uh, the financial advantages of uh, just sending them to a state school, because that would then become transferable. Is that how you would imagine it would work? This is such an important reform. It's such a no-brainer, David. Uh, and, you know, the state of Arizona has uh, recently introduced the first school voucher program. Which state United is States. that? Arizona. 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 Oh. I know. Yes, yes. So uh, Adam Crichton, your friend Adam Crichton, wrote about it in The Australian a couple of months ago. Uh, so we're keeping an eye on that. Now, so, so for the viewers that don't understand how the voucher system works, it's very simple, very, very simple. We're going to abolish the Department of Education. Endless <laughs> thousands of bureaucrats, okay? And we're going to give all parents with school-aged children every year a little certificate, a little voucher that might have a face value of, say, $20,000. And we say to those parents of, uh, whether they're rich or poor, everybody gets it all, all it's all, and, and, it, and it's free. They get this voucher worth $20,000, and it can only be used to, uh, to be cashed in at a school that the parent chooses. Now, there will be... That means the parent is going to choose what school their child or what education their child gets. And what we want is, is a huge diversity of schools. There'll be lots of schools that basically function as normal today. The parents will say, well, our kids like this current school around the corner. We'll use our voucher to keep that school going. No problem. Okay. Now, but then there will be, there will be schools that might be particularly focused on music or art or commerce. Some kids at the age of seven say, mum and dad, I want to be in business. And they've just got that business person's entrepreneurial spirit. Well, we need a few more of those people in the world. Let's have a little school where, the, and the parents might be entrepreneurs. And they say, I want my kid to, to grow up and be a successful business person. Okay, great. So they can have a business focused school. Now, now if the parents are in charge of the education, uh, that means that the, the schools are going to have to go, there'll be home schools, there'll be little micro schools, fine, no problem, it's up to the parents. Uh, and, the, and, and, and the parents, if they don't like the school, they can go to another school, it's entirely up to them. And, and this will create, there'll be so many different types of schools and they'll learn off each other. It's like the federation principle, they'll say, well, we're doing this well, and, and, and the, the, the schools, which are gonna become a business, a profit-making business, the schools are gonna say, hey, look, Mum and Dad, bring your kids to our school. This is our sales pitch. We're going to teach them about this, 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 and this, and we've got fantastic results. The parents will say, okay, great, but it's, it's going to bring the free market to the education system. Now, there will be some schools 
I think a very small number of schools that are going to teach them all about global warming and that the white man's bad because he killed all the Aborigines and they want to teach them about transgenderism and all that. Well, look, under our school voucher policy, if they want to do that, then they can do that. I think that will be a very small number of schools. Now, there will be religious schools, and we say that's fine as well. One of the best parts about it is, David, besides having much better educational outcomes, is a much greater uh, you know, teachers with excellence. So we're going to get rid of all that Leviathan, the Department of Education, and all the billions that go into that. One of the, one of the things I noticed also in your manifesto is that you all support a head of state and you give reasons, continuity and stability. I would also thought their role in relation to being a constitutional guarantor would also be important. That, that provision in your, in your manifesto suggests that you have, as the Liberal Party has, a number of people who don't want the crown. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that is the case. Yes, that is the case. I have been flying the flag for constitutional monarchy unashamedly in the Liberal Democrats. Well, you were the you were you were if I can interrupt you, you were the first young national convener of Australians for constitutional monarchy, were you not? I was briefly, David. Yes, <laughs> I think I've still got the business card there, Scott. We're here. So, look, I, I was I I became a constitutional monarch. I, I loved American history growing up. And I thought, well, look, it's a no-brainer. I said, this, this monarchy is an anachronism and we need to be like the United States. It's a, it's a wonderful system of government. It all changed in one second. I read a line by Winston Churchill. I think it's Winston Churchill. Um, but it was a magnificent line. And it says, the power of the crown, or sorry, the significance of the crown is not the power it possesses, but the power it denies others. And I just instantly said, well, that's absolutely right. I said, we, we, we have a, we have a, it, it's very, this is what I try to tell the libertarians. I say, look, this is very libertarian, the, the constitutional monarchy. It's about removing centralised power. It's about devolving power. I said, yes, uh, uh, we, we're going to put someone on, 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 on the throne who's at the, at the apex of our political structure. And the deal is that they sit there and they do nothing. But the fact that they get that by something like birth means it can't be contested. So we don't have political egomaniacs and want to be dictators saying, you know, I want to be the, I want to be the king because it's just by birth. Now, it is an odd system backed by centuries of success. I mean, if we look at the South Pacific and we look at the Caribbean, where they are overwhelmingly constitutional monarchies, these are relatively poor countries, but they are peaceful countries. They are largely peaceful countries. And it's because they've got that constitutional monarchy. Now, in the Caribbean, of course, there's two hell holes, Haiti and Cuba. Republics, okay? <laughs> Republics, okay? But, the, but uh, Jamaica and Barbados, well, I think Barbados has changed, which is very sad. Uh, but these, these little constitutional monarchies, and we, we, look at, we look at the Scandinavian countries and, and the, the, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, these are countries which have not had dictatorships. Uh, and, and look, even, even Thailand, there's been a, a lot of blood spilt in Southeast Asia in the last century. Thailand has had a lot less blood spilt in it. You, know, you think about you know, Laos and Burma and Cambodia and Vietnam are all around Burma. Oh, sorry, I said that. All around the corner. Thailand's a constitutional monarchy. Uh, and, and, and the same in the Middle East. Uh, uh, now, I know there's been a lot of troubles in the Middle East, 
But David, I think you'd much prefer, we'd all much prefer to live in a middle. Now they're not constitutional monarchies; they're absolute monarchies. Uh, but you'd still prefer to live in a monarchy, a Middle Eastern monarchy, than you would in a Middle Eastern republic, where the blood, where the blood ru runs in rivers when it runs. Yes. Well, when uh, when Egypt and uh, especially Iraq were more democratic, yes. they were constitutional monarchies, and they worked reasonably well. Right. Not perfectly, but reasonably right. well. That, that that saying is, is is absolutely superb. The power that the crown wields, the, the, the power is not the, the power the crown wields, it's the power he, it denies others, and that's very important. And it does mean that on particular occasions, if a prime minister wants to do something, he has to advise the governor general to do it. And that's where the governor general may say, well, no, I don't think you should. For example, when uh, Malcolm Turnbull wanted a double dissolution, the Governor-General insisted that there be supply guaranteed until the Parliament assembled again. And that, that was a very sensible position to take. And uh, we all know what happened when Gough Whitlam, in the position of having lost supply, having supply denied him, advised holding a Senate, a half-Senate election about nine months later, which would have solved nothing, the Governor-General refused him and dismissed him. And that's very important when uh, you do have that power in the Constitution. I think, I used to think the American system worked as well as the, as the Westminster system does, but uh, having seen what's happening with the current incumbent, I don't think so because he is doing He's exercising a dispensing power in relation to legislation. He's ignoring legislation for which a Stuart King lost his head and nothing is happening. <laughs> he should be impeached, but the, the numbers are not there to impeach him, what he's doing at the border. Which brings me, if I may, to the American elections. You were the very first person I knew uh, who supported in 2016 the candidature of Donald Trump. And you told me why you said he is taking the position of stopping illegal immigration. And that is really a big issue. Now, none of the opinion, none of the opinion pollsters seem to be picking that up. And uh, when, when Donald Trump actually won the nomination, which he did very democratically, mainly because the rank and file Republicans wanted him, the establishment Republicans didn't want him, but he, he got the nomination anyway through the convention, through the whole primary process, when, when he got that, and then he, he delivered his speech at Gettysburg, which set out his agenda, I thought that agenda, he achieves a half of that. It will be absolutely wonderful because it was an absolutely superb agenda. So I was converted, but you were the first. Now, I'm going to ask you, not, go, not going back to that, I'm going to ask you, what is your prediction as to who will win the nomination for the Republicans in America, and then who will win the election, the presidential election? Uh, well, I have been a little bit back and forth on this, but I have very much firmed up in the last month. If we're just talking about who will win the nomination, I believe that will be Donald Trump. I agree with and you. And the polls, yes. The polls have increasingly moved in his direction. Uh, now, now, DeSantis has not yet announced. And look, we all love Ron DeSantis. I, I, I think he's magnificent. Uh, he's, on, he's better than Trump on, on many of these COVID issues. Uh, but I would say that... 
with the so benefit Sanders of hindsight, is, perhaps. Well, look, look, poor old Donald Trump. Okay, look, I believe the whole COVID thing was. I don't think it was pre-planned, but when the could Trump I could I interrupt you there? It's now being accepted. Yes. What wasn't what was forbidden to believe? It's now being accepted that the virus escaped from the military laboratory at Wuhan. Wuhan. Yeah. Now, uh, whether whether it escaped accidentally or not is uh, I, I'm not sure about that. A lot of people aren't sure. But anyway, the virus did escape. But with Trump. Uh, when he accepted the view that uh, you had to develop this vaccine quickly and gave a lot of money for that, I suppose he was advised by Fauci to do that. Look, he had his hands tied uh, and I, I sort of give him a pass uh, on his his coat. Look, he was he was always sceptical of the lockdowns and the masks mm. and he was against the COVID mania. Now he did. He did. Yes, he was. He was advised by Dr. Fauci about. Oh yeah, you, you know, spend trillions on the stupid vaccine. You know, warp speed, warp speed. And you now, what would Trump know about the, the vaccine? But anyway, look, I, he was on track to win, according to the betting markets and the polls. We go back to the first week of February, 2020. The impeachment. Remember when they tried to impeach Trump over something to do with Ukraine? He was completely innocent, mm. and Joe Biden was completely corrupt. But they tried to, you know, but they, you know, they used to hate George W. Bush. But I mean, Trump they hated ten times more. Okay, they used to hate Richard Nixon. They hated Trump at least five times more than Richard Nixon. They were, they were, they were just like wild hyenas to get Trump. They were just crazy people to get Trump, even though he was a magnificent president. Mm. World peace, and he lifted up poor people in America in real term wages. But but they hated him, I think, David, so much because he defied the political establishment in that he was really the only president ever who was just a plain citizen who walked off the street and got elected. All the others had to be governors, senators. Now, I know there's a few generals in there as well, but they were very political, the generals back in the day. Um, you know, Eisenhower, even George Washington himself. Okay, The, the political establishment left and right hated Trump's guts because he showed, we really go back to the Athenian democratic ideal where we just a plain citizen can get elected that's what they hated him and trump never became a politician you know how these politicians will always change their messaging and their spin and they'll sort of yeah they'll go in a different direction trump is just always trump okay and sean hannity loves trump sean hannity is very good friends with trump and short i've heard sean hannity say a few times he says yeah i've, I've advised trump to you know tone this down or send out less tweets or anything trump trump doesn't listen he's just trump okay now He's not a politician. DeSantis is a typical politician. Well, look, he's a he's a calculating politician, just like the rest of them. But he happens to be the best of them, in my view. He took courage with the because there's a large elderly population in Florida, and obviously we know that the the older you are, the more of a threat COVID was. Uh, DeSantis was very good on COVID and on the vaccine, and he can and and on all the woke stuff. He's been very very good, but he's still a politician. Uh, so I think that now, now he, he hasn't nominated Mr. DeSantis yet. I think it's looking like he will. I hope he doesn't nominate because if he nominates, he'll, I believe he'll lose. And he's going to, those Trump supporters, which are very, very loyal people, are going to have a grudge, probably a permanent grudge against Ron DeSantis. Mm. Ron DeSantis is younger than me, David. He's only about 45 years old. He's got Good plenty heavens, of time. he's younger than me. <laughs> well, what Mr. DeSantis should do, Professor Flint, is this. 
he should call a press conference and he should say, I endorse Donald Trump for president because he's a great man and he's a great president. I agree. Mr. If Mr. DeSantis did that, he would be that he would be. Trump's not going to run in 2028. It it would be like George Washington saying he was going home. He was going to stand. He wasn't going to contest the presidency again, which I think George III was very much impressed by that. He said he's he's clearly a great man because he decided not to. He did not want to hold on to power. And I think DeSantis, I agree with you. Uh, Do you think the election will be fair enough? Because I, I do think notwithstanding what constantly appears in the Australian, where they, in the news, they say that uh, he constantly lies or misrepresents the election and says it was a a stolen election. Uh, I think it was a stolen election. I think there was sufficient evidence of fraud in that election. I I mean, we even saw it on television where I, I can remember seeing them papering up the glass wall behind which the observers, the scrutineers would sit so they couldn't see what, what was happening. And that case where they pulled out the trunks of, of uh, votes after, they sent everybody home. They said, that we're, we're stopping the voting now. Normally in America, they keep on voting. We're stopping the electing and voting now. They sent uh, the, the, uh, the counters who were uh, Republican home, and then they pulled, once they were home, they pulled out votes from underneath the desk because they didn't realize the security cameras were still on watching them. But there were, I think there was sufficient evidence, particularly in the abuse of postal voting, sending yes. out votes yes, to yes, everybody. Uh, and then, yes, yes. then, uh, then uh, I've forgotten the term, but the way you go around and you collect all of these from people and you use them then to, to vote on their behalf. The, 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 do you think there will be it will be a reasonably clean election or cleaner than the last? Uh, well, okay. So look, I, I I believe that the Donald Trump was the election was stolen from him. I am skeptical of the machines, the voting machines being corrupt. I have an open mind on it, but I think it's pretty unlikely. Uh, but. What you said is precisely correct. It was the mail out ballots, mm. okay, so that everybody in America gets a ballot paper. Now, typically, 35% of Americans don't vote anyway. So the Democrats went around the ghetto and, and people who were just disinterested in politics and they said, we'll give you five bucks if you sign, you give us your ballot paper. That happened on an industrial scale and that was brought to us by COVID mania. That's what COVID mania. Uh, justified them uh, sending out ballot papers to everybody. In the past, people could request a ballot paper to be sent to them, but for the government to proactively send one out. Now, California has now passed a law saying every election, everyone's going to be posted a ballot paper. Okay, so that's gone. Uh, California can't be fixed from here. So the election is all going to come down to how big... Look, Dinesh D'Souza made that magnificent documentary, uh, uh, 2,000 Mules. I endorse it entirely. That's where the fraud was. And then Trump got misled after the election by foolish people who were crapping on about the, uh, you know, the dodgy machines. I think there was all a ruse. Mm. The real election was straight, straight in our face. And Dinesh D'Souza has clearly documented that. Now, the question is, are they going to do it again? Well, they won't have COVID. Um, and, you know, these, these decisions, uh, I, I know that state legislatures have been doing what they can, uh, but the Democratic legislatures want to sort of enshrine this mail-out ballots. And, of course, we know that they will do everything in the world they can to stop Donald Trump. 
having a comeback. So it's going to be a difficult thing. Look, the other, the other, I think my cameras are slipping a little bit. The other interesting thing is, of course, <laughs> is the what's going to happen with the Democrats, okay? They've got silly old Joe Biden, uh, who, you know, we could wake up any day, David, and we turn on our phone and there's breaking news. Joe Biden has passed away peacefully in his sleep. I mean, he's that old. He's that old and sort of uh, mentally in a mess. He physically looks in a mess, okay? And, I'm, and I'm compromised and compromised. Yes, that's right. He know he must know how much of a dodgy person. Look at his kids. Okay, now I know one of them. One of them sounded good. The guy that died, I mean, but he was an impressive guy. Hunter Biden is a complete disgrace. The daughter, the daughter's not much better. You know, in and out of drug rehab places. You know, and, uh, you know, and Biden and, must. Be like and the family, the family operated virtually as a mafia family. They were selling access, and when he was vice president, they were selling access and influence at the highest levels of Washington to the highest bidder, and that often included communist Chinese entities. And I think he's completely compromised. In fact, that my fear is that if China were, communist China were to move on Taiwan, the window of opportunity is while this man is still president, because he is so compromised, he's not going to probably resist them. You know, David, an uh, interesting thing is, you know, the Clintons were highly corrupt on a geopolitical <laughs> level. But, David, the difference between the Clintons and the Bidens is at least the Clintons had the brains to hide it behind a charity, yes. a Clinton initiative, okay? At least they had, at least it had this, this, John Howard gave them endless hundreds of millions of dollars and Alexander Downer. Oh, they said, oh, oh, it's, it's helping people with AIDS in Africa or helping, helping people. Now, we know that 90% of it went into the Clintons' pocket, but the, the Bidens are so dumb they're doing the same thing, but there's no charity. They just sort of say, "Give us money. Give us. I'll send my son over. Give us the money, and we'll give you a favour." That's that's how that's how uh, you know uh, lack of the lack of criminal sophistication is shocking on his part. John, you've been very generous with your time in the middle of an election, which is coming up very soon. I think viewers will see the calibre of the man when they make their judgments concerning the election. It is, I think, crucially important that there be a strong conservative crossbench in the Legislative Council to exercise the degree of scrutiny and legislative veto that is so important in a democratic state. So I do wish you well. And uh, on that, I, uh, on thanking you, I must uh, sign off and uh, on, on this you, program man. of uh, Save the Nation on ADH-TV and uh, wish the listeners well for following this program and until next time. Thank you. Thank you.